My name is Aaron Brown, and I used to be a CIA covert operations officer, an Army Ranger sergeant, and a deputy sheriff. And I'm currently an entrepreneur, a technologist, and a rabble rouser. And this is the Undersimplified Podcast. On episode eight, we speak with Dr. Mike Vickers. Mike is a pretty special character in the last 30 plus years of intelligence work. On this podcast, we've had just a cool, cool opportunity to speak with a lot of really interesting people. A special operations commander who has led some of the most amazing commandos on the face of the planet. We've spoken with a president, former president of a country, other undersecretaries, and all of these people are amazing in their own right. But Mike is particularly uh, amazing. No one really has had as much positive impact on the intelligence community over the last 30 years as he has had. For those who know him, the line that most people will be able to say about him off the cuff is that he nearly single-handedly won the Cold War. Now, he won't say this, but he is known as having been responsible in the CIA for running the covert action program in Afghanistan in the 80s that led to the defeat of the Russian army there. And that defeat is credited with helping bring the Cold War to a close. And Mike was so famous for doing that, his character has been portrayed alongside Tom Hanks in the movie Charlie Wilson's War, which was a book before it was a movie. And the stories about that alone make him a legend inside CIA. But what a lot of people don't know, because the work that he's done since then is a little more behind the scenes and a little more tedious, is that he went on to be the head of all intelligence for DOD. He played a major role in the planning of the Bin Laden raid, where I first met him. And he's really helped shape a lot of what's happened over the last decade with regard to intelligence, both inside the Department of Defense and then across the intelligence community. But along with that, he's just genuinely a really good guy. He's funny. He's humble. He's a great storyteller. And we just had a great conversation with him. If you like this conversation, I will urge you to go and check out Mike's new book, By All Means Available. This book truly is an amazing book. And I will tell you, if you like audiobooks, you should go with the audio edition because Mike reads it himself. And it's just a great way to listen to him tell his own stories. And if you are in the community and you're at all interested in covert action or what we should do about China or leadership or grand strategy for the future. There is something for all of you in this book. And if you're not in the community and you just generally want some good CIA and DOD war stories mixed in with some practical things that we can do for the future to get this country back on track, this book is also for you. One other piece about this particular episode, you'll notice in the middle, we left in a piece of audio that generally we would have cut out, but we left it in because it's kind of interesting. A associate of ours, a friend of ours, stopped in 
to the office for a totally different project and then popped in on uh, the podcast to listen to a piece of it. And he ended up asking some great questions of Mike, who he knows. And I left it in so you could see a little bit of the behind the scenes discussion between a group of people from this community. You'll notice the audio is not amazing for Ed because he was not sitting at a mic. And we also didn't really think we were still recording at that point. So we used acronyms and some inside language. But I think you'll still find it interesting to hear what it's like when a few people just chat briefly um, amongst themselves. I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. Okay, some brief housekeeping. Just a reminder, this podcast is exclusively sponsored by the 2430 Group. The 2430 Group is a nonprofit that puts itself at the forefront of protecting America's intellectual property, our critical technology, and all the things that we will need to have a bright and amazing future and which are under threat from some of our most amazing adversaries, Russia and China, who are attempting to steal this right out from under our noses or through the front door, and 2430 Group is attempting to stop them. And then if you like this podcast, please, please, please share it, rate it, subscribe to it, look for the YouTube videos. It's the only way that we can grow this audience. And then finally, if you like some of the things I'm talking about on AI, the future, how you can prepare for the coming technological revolution that we're going to face, leadership, resiliency, any of these topics, please drop me an email using the information in the show notes. And I would love to come talk to your group, your workshop, your conference about any of these topics. Thank you very much. And without further ado, Dr. Mike Vickers. Dr. Mike Vickers, welcome to the Undersimplified podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, this is an extraordinarily exciting event for us here. We have had an amazing opportunity to be in and around you for almost your almost my entire career. You you held various positions across the government. I want to quickly go back to a place that's near and dear to your heart and also to mine in Afghanistan and say I wanted to welcome you by calling you Dr. Undersecretary Engineer Captain Vickers. <laughs> Because that's the way they do it in Afghanistan, and it felt appropriate. <laughs> right. Thanks. Yeah, I've said engineer more than a few times. I, I'm sure you have. And, and, and you're definitely in com competition for the titles that you know, General Wardock would have thrown out in a right. meeting. So. Right. Thanks for joining us today. This is, again, this is a cool opportunity for me, and, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about why it's even cooler than you, you probably know up until this point. I would love for you to, you, you know, you've just written a book. A really fascinating, amazing book. Uh, I'm not just saying this because you've agreed to come on my podcast. I, I loved every second of it. I was sort of living vicariously through you mm. and some of the things that you got to do that the agency doesn't do as much um, anymore, or maybe will in the future, but not currently. Would you just sort of walk us through, give us a thumbnail sketch of your your professional career and, and where you started and, and how you ended up where you are today? Because it really is a fascinating arc through the the last... 30 plus years of history. Sure. Well, when I was 19 and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and, and realized that my dreams of being a pro quarterback or baseball player were not realistic, shall we say, I thought I would become a, a CIA operations officer. And I only had barely two years of college at that point. And so I thought the best route into that would be to become a Green Beret or Special Forces soldier. You could do direct enlistment enlistment if you qualified. 
at the time. And so that's what I did. I enlisted in the Special Forces, spent about five years um, there while working on my degree and getting a lot of other training um, that came in handy later in life. And then I went to officer candidate school and was given an assignment to go right back to Special Forces as a second lieutenant and then ended up commanding what today we call a troop command, but a couple of operational detachments dedicated to a counterterrorism intelligence mission. And then I finally was able to realize my plan and went into the CIA as an operations officer, spent a few years there doing some interesting things. And then as the Cold War was coming to an end, left government, got an MBA, got a PhD, and then was called back into government after 9-11 as an assistant secretary of defense, and then as an undersecretary of defense. It's amazing how quickly you can even get all of that resume out. You, you, <laughs> you've had a couple of chances to do it. Just absolutely amazing. I'd love to hear, you know, I, I don't think I didn't, I knew I wanted to go and, and, and when I was young and, and do something spooky. I just didn't know what it was. And I don't think I ever recall thinking about the Central Intelligence Agency as, a, as one of those places I would end up later in life. I, I sort of discovered it along my path towards this amorphous goal that I was looking for. But you were determined from a young age to end up where you did. I'd love to hear, now that you're looking back, just a couple of your, your most fond memories when you think about your time. Choose any point that you want. Well, I just turned 70. And in my image of myself, I still think <laughs> I'm in my 20s or 30s and an operator. And so I think a lot of that special forces training, counterterrorism training with the British Special Air Service, training in, in the Cold War to parachute behind Soviet lines with a backpack nuclear weapon in the event of general nuclear war, still sticks with me. It's, you know, it's part of my, my self-image. And then the extraordinary opportunities I had at CIA, the first one kind of accidental to be the point of the spear of the first three guys for CIA into Grenada when we invaded in 1983, but really given the opportunity of a lifetime to be the Afghanistan Covert Action Program officer in 1984 to take on the Soviets directly and, you know, what turned out to be the largest and most successful covert action program in CIA's history. So, you know, that was certainly a highlight. And then later in life, it was the campaigns against Al-Qaeda and the deep attention I, I gave that over eight years, and then the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. And, you know, coming out of the White House at two in the morning after the president had spoken to the nation and hearing a bunch of college students, you know, as I was standing in, in, in West Exec Drive there outside the White House, hearing them chant, you know, USA, USA, and CIA, CIA, I thought I better, it's two in the morning, but I thought I better pause for a second and listen to this because I'm never going to hear this again in my life. So so just to, to cut in here and, and give you, I told you there's going to be some corollaries I was going to drop on you along the way. I was on the other side of that fence at uh. 2 a.m., I had just also come home from CIA. So I was in PAC Afghan department serving for, let me see if I can remember the names that you gave them. I think it was Gary. Oh, Gary, and right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll mess it up if I try the other one. Yeah. I was his executive assistant at that time. Yeah. 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 So I worked very closely. He remains a really good friend. Same, same for me. Yeah. Uh, I love the guy. And I, I was on the other side of that fence because I was driving home and it was on the news that, that there were folks out there. And I remember I lived on that street effectively. Is that right? Down. Yeah. And I stopped and got out of the car and just sort of also just, just as you said, 
listened and thought, wow, this isn't going to be the last time I hear it. So we, we couldn't have been more than 400 meters apart for that event. Well, so the other thing, you know, and I had my car at CIA because that's where the command and control of the operation was done. It was done under uh, Title 50 or CIA authorities with the commander of the operation, Bill McRaven, reporting to, you know, Leon Panetta as director. So I hitched a ride back with uh, Panetta and Morell to CIA and then got in my car and drove home. But the other thing I remember about that night was being able to call my wife. You know, I had lived with this secret for uh, nine months or something like that. And she progressively said to me, you know, you're just strange. You're not your normal self. And then I got called back for a White House meeting when we were on a short vacation in Florida over um, Easter weekend. And, you know, and I had to go back on Sunday. And she said, what kind of government calls people back on Easter Sunday? And so I was really in the doghouse. And so uh, when we notified congressional leaders uh, right before the president's speech, and then we were allowed to um, call our spouses and at least say, you know, we'll be, because I was gone all weekend, that when we'll be home, I just said, look, turn on the TV, and I hope you'll forgive me. I'll be home about three o'clock. And so. Well, I, I, my story is exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly the same. Yeah. I remember when they pulled the cots into Pak Afghan department, and obviously most of the department did not know. Yeah. There were only right. think, maybe 20 of us that yeah. knew in, the, in this 200 plus person department. Right. And I remember some of the folks were like, why are there cots? Yeah. This is already a strange department in CIA, yeah. right? Yeah. Why are there cots in here? Yeah. And, and I don't think we anyone ever actually used them, but we were there certainly all of those weekends. And you, you know, from your time, it, it, the Pentagon is a place that's a little more common to go in on the weekends, but CIA headquarters yeah. generally, with some exceptions, it's not yeah. a weekend place. Right. Uh, right. And this had been now a weekend place for weeks and weeks at a time. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I was very similarly in the doghouse and, and made a, a very similar phone call. Well, uh, and then the, the other thing about that historic event was it was originally planned for the day before and got weathered out. And so a number of us had to go so we didn't reveal anything to the scheduled White House Correspondents Dinner. And this was this famous dinner where President Obama really lit into then non-candidate Donald Trump, later president, you know, about his hair and everything else after the birth and showed birth certificate, uh, you know, on the stage. And, you know, everybody but one person in that audience was laughing that one person, Donald Trump, <laughs> yeah. obviously, had maybe launched his presidential career. But, you know, I hated being there. I couldn't wait to get back to work. And one journalist who's a very nice guy, because you have journalists sitting with you when you go to these things as chatting with me and then he, he you know he kind of deadpanned and he said wouldn't it be great if we got bin laden and i said yeah it would you know and I was just, <laughs> a few days later you know he called me up and he goes you didn't reveal a thing you know and oh man you know so well i I'd, i'll pull on this just a second longer since we're here and because it's probably now fresh in your mind as it is mine i'd love to hear you know how uh, how did you spend that day? People ask me this question all the time. That day was such an interesting day, and it was it was so tense. And you're right, the the rolling 24 hours was just. Uh, you remember this back from your mission days? Like, what a crazy thing to roll 24 hours when you're just ready to go. I can't imagine what the seals were feeling out there in Jalalabad when when they heard that they were going to go 24 hours further. But when we finally got there on Sunday, I, I remember you know the day started early on our side. I'm sure it did for you too. Uh, I would love. Could you just walk me through, you know, briefly the day and what you were feeling? I, I'll say I will say one more thing here. Throughout my career, and I, I, no doubt you have these because I, I read it in your book. I had these days that I would call. I call to people CIA days. We know those of us who've been in that most 
days at the CIA are not as exciting as people would expect. It's, it's a work. It's a job. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of moving things around and putting things in place. But then where it differs from most other places is every once in a while, there's a CIA day. And then oftentimes that day is more amazing than even the movies can make it out. And you having been in a movie, which we'll talk about, or at least your character portrayed in a movie, we'll, we'll see how that adds up. But yeah, I would love to hear you talk about just what that day was like. You already hit the end of it and, and a little bit of the middle. but Yeah, so uh, it's a great concept of CIA days because they certainly exist and they exist in special operations. And, you know, they're not every day, but when they are, they're extraordinary and not, not, they're not, nothing like them. So that whole weekend... I largely spent at the White House. And again, nobody on my staff in the Pentagon knew, so I'm driving myself and going into the office myself and getting things and then going to the White House. And so I was in the White House all day Saturday and Sunday for deputies and principals meetings and, you know, so the top cabinet officials and the sub-cabinet officials, of which I was one. And then Sunday morning, same thing. We had more compressed deputies and principals meetings till 1 o'clock, and then I went to CIA or several of us did, uh, Director Panetta and Deputy Michael Morell, um, for the actual operation, uh, which was you know, uh, centered in the director's uh, conference room for uh, strategic command and control. And I remember Sunday morning, you know, finally the day is here, drove to the Pentagon to pick up some papers. It was very, very early. And then I went to the 9-11 memorial at the Pentagon, where we have 184 um, benches for the those killed on the American Airlines flight that crashed into the Pentagon on, on 9-11, and sat down for a few moments. And there was, you know, nobody in the parking lots or anything, and just thought about what we were about to do, and, you know, and thought about those victims and, and all the others in New York and in Pennsylvania, and thought to myself, what we're doing is for you, you know, all of you. And then Went to the White House, couldn't wait for the operation to begin, and then we had several hours at CIA from before the operation through the operation until it un until it ended. And uh, you know there were some tense moments when the helicopter had a hard landing, but as soon as I saw the seals get out, I knew we were fine. And that was just a question of whether he was in the house. And on any any great day of drama has its interesting moments. I. I remember after the the raid when we're all back at the White House, and President Obama is talking to Admiral McRaven, and you know one of the things we did to verify Bin Laden's identity, kind of on the fly, was have him have a seal who was about the same height at the ba the launch base lie down next to the the Bin Laden's body. You know, Bin Laden was six feet four, and Seal was roughly the same size, and. You know, that plus the CIA officers identifying him. And, you know, later we did the DNA and all that. But uh, President Obama afterwards said, so, Bill, you know, you crash a $60 million helicopter and everything, and you can't afford a tape measure, you know? So <laughs> it was a pretty good time. Yeah, I, there's so many great quotes from that day. And and I, I also, I love hearing the different stories from the different places where folks were. You know, we, I was seven floors below you during that day. And, and, you know, we had a, there were, I think, probably no less than five operation centers acting right. uh, that day. Right. But we were sort of in the the last minute questions, run up papers, move things around, op center. So like but what you'd expect to see behind the scenes, if there was a behind the scenes for the director's conference. Right. Only we were, we were you know, you'd have to run for three minutes to get between them. Right. And I remember when they called out Geronimo in our space, there was a, a cheer, yeah. like a quite 
it, it cheer that folks would hurt because it was it was a f- everybody got invited that day so that was one of the things that gary actually yeah was responsible for he said you know if this thing's gonna leak it's not gonna leak from this team right invite anybody in that wants to come in at this point so they can participate in this and mm. and but i remember talking to the folks up on the seventh floor and i don't think there was a cheer up there i think that was a kind of even still sort of a quiet handshake moment um because obviously the seals were still in danger and and things were shaping up on the battlefield there to to make it a tricky exit. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so, you know, that call out by the ground force commander was 10 minutes into a 38 minute operation. And so we still had to deal with the crash landed helicopter and, and, and the non-combatants and a lot of things to get out and worried about Pakistani military showing up or neighbors and, a CIA officer along with the mission really did a fantastic job in telling, gathering neighbors to go back to their houses that this was a Pakistani military exercise. But yes, you know, would they scramble fighters? We had a lot of contingencies. And so until our troops were safely back in Afghan airspace, it was, it was pretty sober. I'd like to go back in time from the bin Laden raid a little bit to one of the most fascinating points, at least for me in your book, when you get sent as a trainee, a CIA trainee, to Grenada for the engagement of hostilities there, effectively a very short war. For those of us who served in CIA and remember our trainee days very well, this seems like an impossible thing to happen. As a trainee, I don't remember being allowed to TDY to New York without an enormous amount of permission, but yet you're sent effectively on day two of your employment down to a war with a gun and a couple of other guys and some limited instructions. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So it was impossible then too. And it wasn't <laughs> quite day two, but it was pretty close to it. So I had uh, been accepted into what was then um, the agency's career training program. You know, now each directorate has its own uh, program. It was mostly for operations officers, but had some analysts and S&T officers in the group as well. We went through a uh, introduction to the agency and intelligence community course for 10 weeks. And then we had what they called two interim assignments before we went for our operations and special operations training, you know, the paramilitary for many, many months. And my first one was in Latin America division, but because I had, we had, and we had wars going on in Central America at the time, but because I had been in true name as a special forces commander, for the past three years, they assigned me to what was called the Caribbean branch. You know, and I, when I first got assigned, I, th- I thought, oh my <laughs> goodness, the Caribbean is where people go on vacation. You know, why did they do this to me? And you know, I just come out of 10 years in special forces. <laughs> and it turns out there was more going on in the Caribbean than I thought. You know, Suriname, there had been a near invasion and, and, and covert action and it, it was aborted, but there was some cleaning up work to do. And so on actual, on day two of my interim assignment, the branch chief, a fellow named Bill Rooney, one of my mentors, uh, called me in and said, here's why I asked for you and here's what I want you to do. And it was to break an asset of ours out of a jail. He was uh, the dictator who took over in a coup, had detained a lot of the political opposition and showed me some satellite f- photographs of the jail and said, you know, how would you do this? And what, what do I need to do this? And I thought, this is why I joined CIA. Now, now I like this. C- CIA day check. Yeah, CIA yeah. day check. You know, So I worked on that for a bit. And then as luck would have it, for me at least, not for others, but 
situation in Grenada started really deteriorating in the middle of October. And so I, and, and it started kind of on a, we had a number of medical students there, almost 600 attending medical school, American medical students. And so I started working round the clock from Thursday night to prepare CI's leadership for White House meetings, you know, principals meetings on what to do about the situation in Grenada. And I finally got to go home on a Saturday afternoon after another meeting to, to get some sleep late afternoon. And then I got called early that Sunday morning and told to come into the office and pack for two weeks. And so I thought, okay, they're going to send me to some CIA base. So I packed a bunch of uh, suits and ties and just a little bit of casual clothes. And as soon as I got in, it was a rainy day in Washington. As soon as I got in, the branch chief said, you, me, and a communicator are going in with the invasion force. And you know, I'd been in CIA for three or four months at that point, hadn't been to ops training. And so we, and fortunately, I'd packed a few clothes. And so just as you said, they gave me a weapon, a bag full of tens of thousands of dollars of cash to resuscitate, reconstitute our, the agents that we had on island and, and a satellite communications and got a quick briefing and then got on a, a special aircraft and, and flew down and then went in with the invasion force. And, you know, I went, I went to war with a Ralph Lowen, Lauren polo shirt, some linen pants, and then the weapons. And, and the first day, we didn't, we didn't have, obviously, any lodging, any bedding, any vehicles, so we hot-wired an East German construction truck. So we're driving around in this five-ton truck on the airfield. I only had a handgun, a Browning high-power pistol, so I got some captured AKs from 2nd Ranger Battalion, who was on the airfield, and I had uh, <laughs> former colleagues and buddies there, and even a couple parachutes for us to sleep in in the night. And then, you know, CI Logistics swung into high gear, and so they fly in a jeep for us and things got a little better after that so you know people on the ground see you come in in a polo shirt and linen pants not realizing that for you that was a mistake in packing they see it and they say of course that's what the cia guy <laughs> right i thought uh, is wearing this is what i expected to see <laughs> right so we're there with our most elite special operators and you know and it was still combat for a few days including some for us and and, and, and cia but that's exactly what they thought and and, and in fact, about oh, six or seven days into the opera, we had gotten in a gunfight, a couple stories from that. We had gotten in a gunfight when we were visiting an arms cache, uh, the COS and me, and we were visiting an 82nd Airborne unit on the very front lines in Grenada, pushed out from the airfield. And then we came under fire from some Cuban remnants, and uh, you know the firefight was over in about 10 minutes. But then a few days after that, Gaddafi... Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, had sent instructions to various uh, emissaries of his around the world to take Americans hostage in Grenada. And so we were instructed by CIA leadership to go apprehend this Libyan intelligence operative that was at loose. And Which again, just for listeners, for the idea of CIA headquarters calling CIA agents, our officers in, in this day and age, to go apprehend anyone would just be such a crazy yeah, event. Yeah. And the idea that in 1983, this is 
This is, this is it was pretty freewheeling. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was the first of our big expeditionary operations, and it was pretty freewheeling. So we're there with about uh, 10 special operators in what was our station. It was a former ambassador's residence overlooking the airfield. And the COS asked if they could accompany us to do this, you know, to give us more muscle. They called back to their headquarters, and they had taken – this was kind of like a liaison element that was left. The main forces had left, and they had sustained some pretty heavy casualties. And the answer was no, no more, no more combat for our guys and stuff. We don't know enough about this operation. It's going too fast. And so the COS just said, Mike, get your gun. We're going anyway. And I just thought – Holy man. And then this, the seal said to us, you guys have balls. And I thought, I hope we're not, I thought to myself, I hope we're not thinking with them, you know? And, and so off we went and, you know, and it turned, as it turns out, there were some tense moments, but the, the operative had made his way to the Soviet embassy already. And so there was no apprehension, but going into the Libyan residence was a bit of drama. And we left one guy outside who had accompanied us. There were three of us and the COS and I went inside and I just, thought, now we're going to get taken hostage. And so I'm, you know, cocking my weapon and making sure the, the Libyan ambassador could see it. And I've got my hand on it the whole time. And, but it turned out all right. And well, so then to your question, I did a few more things in Grenada. I was there for a total of about two weeks. And then the career training staff found out that I was missing and where I was. And then, you know, they had cardiac arrest, as, as you'd expect. So it really isn't that different. No, from HR here took over. Yeah, HR yeah. took over and they said, he's got to come back right now. And so literally, I, uh, I turned over all my cash and everything to the COS, my weapons and stuff, caught a military aircraft to the airport in Bridgetown, Barbados. At that time, then, the Navy had actually given us some dunkarees to wear. The mission commander was a three-star admiral, and we had a meeting between him and the senior State Department rep and the COS and me, and we were pretty grungy by that point, and so he gave us these sailor dunkarees. And so I literally went into the bathroom at the airport, took off the dungaree, dusty and grease, threw them in the trash can, put on something out of my suitcase, got my American Express card out, bought a ticket and, and flew home. And then when I got back, I had come into the agency with Spanish, Czech, and Russian, and I thought I would end up going to the Soviet bloc or maybe Latin America for a first tour. And the staff called me in and said, you've been requested by name for another special assignment. And as it turns out, the Sunday that I was called into headquarters to go to Grenada, Hezbollah had blown up our Marine barracks in Lebanon, and yeah. the Near East Division formed a special task force, a counterterrorism task force, to identify those responsible for the bombing and propose actions against them. And so I got assigned to the Lebanon task force, and I knew nothing about the Middle East. And, and they said, doesn't matter. The, you know, you've, you've had combat experience in Grenada, and they want you for this. And so that, that was my introduction to the Middle East. Yeah, and uh, I think that story there at the end, the transition to a, a mission and a place for which you had no experience and, and hadn't given any thought to going, and all of a sudden you're in the thick of it in the CIA, that, that's a more consistent yeah, line. line. Yeah, right, uh, right, I've studied right. Chinese, and they're sending me to Russia. Right, uh, right. But obviously that then starts an entire career with that region, and I think that bombing, there's a number of events that happen, you know, starting in 1979 with the invasion of Afghanistan that obviously played an enormous role in your life, but then also the takeover of the Red Mosque by the first Islamic extremists to sort of demonstrate that they were going to have an international 
calling card of sorts, and, and that led to, I think, many terrorist organizations realizing that they could make huge impact by having sensational things broadcast across the you know the world's news, and then the bombing, obviously, in, in Lebanon, you know, plays a major role in Hezbollah becoming a worldwide known terrorist group, and, and though that's Shia, I think the Sunni terrorist groups, as we all know, sort of looked at that and said, wow, we didn't even think that that something of that magnitude was possible. You know, it allowed them to expand their imaginations, unfortunately. And I think there's no question in my mind that when Al-Qaeda thought about bombing embassies in Africa, they looked at that success and said, it's possible, it's doable. Absolutely, and had some training um, by those operatives. And, you know, bin Laden looked to both Hezbollah's experience in, in driving Americans essentially out of Lebanon and large-scale bombings and kidnappings, and then Somalia, same thing, you know, the famous Black Hawk Down or Operation Gothic Serpent to try to capture Somali warlord Mohammed Farah Adid, whose 30th anniversary we just had this week. That's where he thought that America was a paper tiger and could be driven out of regions by, by you know, appropriate casualties and operations. Okay, I think Ed actually is here now, so I think he's going to walk in and then I might re-ask that because I think that's, that's exactly where I was going to go. Ed, how are you, buddy? Good, We're about to jump into, I think, Afghanistan oh here, but we've been having a fun time already. You, you good to hang out for a bit if yeah, you got so everything you need? I'm going to probably leave by like 11.15. Oh, we'll be done by then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I'm not done with the book yet, but uh, there's some really amazing things. First of all, I, I know you're just talking about, I had no idea about the Grenada thing. But uh -huh. we just talked about it. You're going to yeah. have to listen to it yeah, now I back. Yeah, I can't wait to yeah. listen because that is such an interesting story. Yeah. And there's a corollary thing that I thought was super fascinating, and it just reminds me. The force of personalities that we have in the building at times, and we're kind of lacking in them right now. You had some really good, strong people who are like, we need this guy. Yeah. Like it's it's obvious, like I didn't know all the nuance of your back like your specific background experiences, but it seems to me I knew I knew what you did. I didn't realize how like sort of on the higher on the high end of the curve. So I think I can imagine the agency getting you as a CT, they know what they have. They have something really special yeah. here. And then it gets this is what I said. I said, so I, those of us who remember our training days fondly, you can't even imagine. Can you envision this? I, I, I asked for a TDY in New York, I said, and they were yeah. like, no. Well, you know what the, You know what they did after they wet their pants and called me back? They also, <laughs> but then gave me another special assignment or told me I had to take it. Then in successive CT classes, when they did their introductory lecture, you know, after people EOD, they would say to them, you know, you better be ready because, you know, you could go on some operational mission, right, in training. We just had a CT that did that. No, I, I, would, uh, I said that all the time, like, you're, you're only a cowboy until you're successful yeah, without yeah. having gotten anyone killed, and then you're a disruptor. Yeah, right. Like you're right, an innovator. Right, right. But, Ed, to your point, you know, one of the things I say at the end of the book, and, and I say it repeatedly in my talks, is one of the big lessons for me in a, a, across government is how much individuals matter yeah. you know and it may not be just one it may be you know three or four of them that are in the right positions but it makes all the difference and it's not that the people that they replace are necessarily less intelligent they may be more risk averse or something right. but it's just people move history and everybody who thinks that isn't the case 
Well, people want organizations. They want to talk about or and it's important yeah. to talk about organizations and how they should be structured. Right. What makes them efficient. Right. But, but there is the force of people who get it. Right. Who make space and then people execute within that space. Right. And sometimes organizational change matters, but that's the other thing. I'm way more on the side of get the right individual in a job and yeah. they'll figure it out. But also capabilities. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter if you don't like. If I look at why we're able to do certain things much better, say in with the bin Laden raid in 2011 right. than right. we were in 2001. It's not only, we had lots of experience and we had some new things that we didn't have back in then, yeah. you know, and then we knew how to use them by then, you know, but it, th that's what makes a difference. All right, you're gonna use up all our good questions. I'm gonna, uh, have, to, I'm gonna have to actually no capture that one and uh, edit you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll go, we'll go back to the Red Army. So how fascinating that we're, we're however many minutes into this and we haven't even jumped into what I think is is your the, the most cool, interesting part of your career. And for me, at least the way that I understand it, was your single-handed defeat of the Soviet Red Army in Afghanistan. And I think we're, we're, we're coming up close to that in the timeline right now. And yeah, I would just love to hear how you transitioned from where you were in Lebanon to becoming involved in, in what would be just an amazing point in history that you had a, a front row seat to for almost the entire duration of it. Sure. So, you know, the Leb well, Grenada was really an exhilarating experience for me in, in CIA and even, you know, planning to get an asset, break an asset out of jail in Suriname was as well. Lebanon was a really searing experience, mm -hmm. you know, that we didn't have good options, uh, that we had gone into the, the, the country with inadequate force and and, and really restrictive rules of engagement. I had worked closely with our COS, Bill Buckley, who had been captured and tortured. It was really a, a formative experience, but a, 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 as I said, a searing one for me that I carried with me the rest of, you know, about dealing with terrorists who were really bent on savage means for the rest of my, my professional career. And then I had to go down to the farm for the operations course. And in those days, we had a special operations 12-week course that had, you know, so I went to jump school again and, and all that stuff. But it was, it was, you know, repeat of special forces training. And then when I came out of training, you know, in those days you would get home-based in a director of operations division. And the head of what was That's then... That's come back around, by the way. Yeah, I heard so, that. Yeah, You're yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And then the, the head of what was then International Activities Division, which is today's special activities plus a bunch of other stuff, counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, uh, international finance, lots of things, said to me, we're trying to create a fast track for a few CIA officers to specialize in covert action to go back and forth between being regular operations officers and managing big covert action programs. And we would like you to be our first case. And I said, okay, you know, and he said, where do you want to go overseas right away? And I said, well, you know, so they offered me El Salvador and a few other places. And I knew the person who was going to be the chief there. And they, and I said, well, there's a lot of wars going on. And given my experience, I'd like to start in ground branch. And even though I'm not a paramilitary officer, I'm a operations officer. He said, fine. So I got a sign there. And two weeks in, you know, I thought I would be doing the normal ground branch stuff. Two weeks in, I was told they want to interview you for this new job. Uh, this is five years into the 
Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, and a congressman, Charlie Wilson, had just increased CIA's budget by a factor of four. So CIA had asked for a 10% increase, and they got a 300% increase, which you don't see every day. I can't, it might be the last time it's been seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm wondering, I don't know why they want me, but so I go interview with the head of South Asia operations, a guy named Gustav Ricados, who became a dear friend, and a couple of his deputies. And I guess they liked me and they offered me the job, which combined, you know, the chief paramilitary advisor who up till then had been a Marine colonel and the covert action program officer who had been a, a GS-15. And, uh, you know, I was still a GS-11. And so I thought, you know, I just count my blessings, you know, this is a great job. And some people said, why do you want to go do Afghanistan? You can't win there. And we do a lot of things through the Pakistanis. And I thought... It's the main enemy. If we win there, it really matters. If we win in Central America, it moves pieces on the chessboard a little bit. And so I thought, you know, this is an opportunity. And I said, we've got, we just had our budget quadrupled. You know, I'll take my chances. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah, I'll roll the dice here. On yeah, I'll roll the dice on we, this. I, gotta, I have to break in here just to, because you, you even said moving the chess pieces around and, and you probably know where I'm going to go. Any of us who know you and, 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 this came up even when I started my career at CIA. Your name was a known name. I, I mean, they might have even been telling that same CST story in trading. <laughs> yeah. like, you never know when yeah. CST went to war on day two. But your name did come up. And I can't remember when the movie came out, Charlie Wilson's War. I think it I mean, was the end of 2007. So, so this is very close um, yeah. to, to where um, I was a trainee at that, you know, just yeah. around that time. And so, so we were all watching that movie. It had high reviews, obviously, Tom Hanks. Yeah. You, your character... And it's, it's portrayed in that movie. And so as you talk right now with Gust coming and selecting you and Charlie Wilson being around, obviously it's a movie, but they portray you, if I recall, I, I don't think I've seen it since 2007, but you in a park playing two games of chess, I think, simultaneously. It was four, is, actually. <laughs> and with my back to the board from boards from time to time, yeah. And this must come up all the time it for does. those of us who remember it. Yeah. How does that... So people ask if I'm a grandmaster in chess, and the answer is no, I stink at it. You know, this is Hollywood taking liberties with, okay, so if you're this covert action strategist, how are you going to portray this visually? And so they made me into a chess master. But the true part of the story is that Gus and I did have a meeting with Charlie Wilson in Lafayette Park. Not, not. I don't think there were anybody playing chess then or anything that we noticed. I've but, never seen anyone playing yeah. chess in Lafayette Park. For those of you who don't know, that's right across from the White House. And yeah. uh, at this day and age, it's it's, it's roped off and, and, and harder to enter. But. but so we just had a meeting. And then a few weeks later, the three of us went to Cairo for weapons supply and, and discussions with, with the Egyptians, one of our partners in the, in the program. But that's how I got to meet Charlie Wilson. But nothing as dramatic as the, as the movie it, portrays. It, it never is. But I, I've wondered ever since I saw that movie and, and now getting the chance to talk to you in person, just, just how much that must, it just must come up all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the other, the other part of the movie that I remember even more is what wasn't shown on screen, thank, thankfully, because it didn't exist. But, you know, the book was published in 2003, and the agency, a lot of senior agency officers had told the parts of the story that they could. And so the book was pretty accurate. And I had been back in government when the movie came out as an assistant secretary, and I had no idea what the movie was going to look like. Charlie Wilson was a consultant to it, and Milt Bearden, a former CIS, a CIA colleague of mine, 
who was chief in Islamabad in the latter years of the war, was a consultant. But, you know, as movies are, as books are turned into movies, they change, you know, uh, screenwriters do different things and then directors. So we were allowed to go to the premiere in New York, my wife and I, yeah, by the general counsel's office at the Department of Defense, but that was it. And my wife asked me, so how's the movie going to be different from the book? And I said, I don't know. We'll just have to see you know, oh, for wow. this private screening. And she said, well, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about this. And I said, why? And she says, well, you, you know Charlie Wilson. And you know he was a bachelor then, and he was dating Miss Universe and others. And the movie, as it turns out, opens with him in a hot tub in Las Vegas. And my wife says... You know, if they have someone portraying my husband with Hollywood starlets or Miss Universe, <laughs> I'm going to be really unhappy, and, and then you're going to be dead. And so I'm sitting in this private theater thinking, please, God, you know, do not have me in some hot tub. You know, and so when they made me a nerd and a chess player, I thought, thank you. Free this and clear. is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Free. Did you, this would be my last movie question because I know it's totally de a derailment, but did you get the chance to meet Tom Hanks? And, yes, yeah, we had a did. private dinner with him and, and Philip, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman and so it was, and, and Aaron Sorkin, the screenwriter. So that was an interesting part. And then they had us, before we went into the private screening room, we walked on a red carpet like the Academy Awards. And so Amy Adams, the actress who was playing Charlie Wilson's chief of staff in the movie, is ready to walk and they tell my wife and I walk behind her just go in you know and so we're walking down and all the paparazzi you know or Amy turn this way turn this way and then one of them looks at me and you know who are you, <laughs> you know, know. nobody's gonna make me mistake me for a Hollywood star but, uh... well it's probably as good a point as any to transition back to the real world and and also what ultimately ended up being, I think, even a far more interesting story than they were able to get across in uh, even the book or the movie, because it was just such a, a crazy time. And then so much happened in, in what ended up being a, uh, almost a decade, but you were there for all of it. So yeah, uh, again, would love to just let you riff on, on whatever you think you would like to that stands out in your mind. This is a fascinating thing. If Even if no one else listened to this podcast, this would be a great day for me to hear you tell the story in person. Sure. When I took over the job as Afghanistan Covert Action Program officer, you know, it was five years into the war. And as I said, the budget had just been quadrupled. But there were a number of immediate problems I had to deal with. One, there was insufficient ammunition. The emphasis in the program early on had been to supply a lot of small arms to the Afghan resistance and other weapons and at the expense of ammunition. And so that affected combat tempo. And so CIA was very worried at its previous budget level, which is again was one quarter the size, that the program had been so misaligned in a way that they would have to supply nothing but ammunition. The entire budget would get consumed by it, no mm. more weapons, uh, just to keep the fight going, which is not a position you want to be in. And, you know, and there's kind of echoes of that in U Russia, Ukraine today, where you see, you know, just the intensity of war, you know, ammunition is really what drives it once you have sufficient weapons. So I had to deal with that and fortunately had more budgetary resources. But also because the weapons were generally on the light side, the insurgents 
couldn't do large-scale operations, large-scale ambushes. They were stuck with doing small tactics. They couldn't really harass the Soviets in their bases, and, and they were subject to an air threat. They didn't really have any anti-air weapons except for one heavy machine gun, a 12.7 millimeter called the Dashika, or DSHK in Russian. And so I used this new funds to deal with these problems, to do more anti-air weapons and more heavy weapons, anti-tank and long-range rockets, again, echoes of Ukraine today, and, and ammunition and then training and intelligence. And after I got about three or four months in and I had met all our liaison partners, you know, we had a secret coalition that went, a lot of people don't realize this, the Chinese were on our side, Pakistan is the frontline state, Saudi Arabia funded the program dollar for dollar with the United States, so doubling our budget essentially, Egypt, the United Kingdom. And on one of my trips to Pakistan after meeting with a lot of insurgent commanders, I sent a cable back to headquarters that had done all these calculations. And, and it was, you know, a hand calculator and a yellow legal pad at the time. And I said, you know, thinking about the insurgent force I wanted and how we could really ramp up the war. And I, and I said, you know, if we doubled our budget, it was 500 million then at the time, counting the Saudi contribution, to about 1.2 billion, we might actually win the war. And it, I said <laughs> it on 1.2 billion. And, yeah. You know, and so Director Casey, this is a Saturday, and Director Casey called the branch chief uh, for Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, and, and said, what is this? The budget just got quadrupled and you're asking to double it again, you know, or is, who, who did this? And, 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 you know, and he said, well, Mike Vickers, was he out of his friggin' mind and stuff like that? And Isn't he a trainee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not quite, <laughs> but, and the, the branch chief, uh, I'll, I'll thank to this day, a guy named Larry told the director at the time, now you listen to him. He knows his noodles, you know, and Casey grumbled something. But in any event, then CIA decided to support the request for more funds, which we ended up getting several months later when a DOD program was canceled. And then the other thing that really helped was there was a National Security Council strategic review of the program at the end of Reagan's first term, again, a few months into my tenure, and a few months into then President Reagan's second term. And like a lot of things, you know, it reviewed the problems we were having in the program, and there were charges in Congress that the Pakistanis were stealing all our weapons for their own use and they weren't supporting the war, or that it was a hopeless cause and we were just wasting Afghan lives. and. Uh, but in a review of strategic objectives, the issue was raised, should we just continue to impose costs on the Soviets and make the occupation as costly as possible with no thought of winning, which was the obje covert action objective up to that point, and all the analysts supported that, or should we aim to actually try to drive the Soviets out. And one of the working papers said, by all means available. And I, you know, I'm, I get this stuff. I'm the guy responding to the NSC as the uh, program officer. And I think, oh, that's the one I want to do. You know, why, why just uh, settle for uh, imposing costs on them? And CIA leadership ended up agreeing. Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense agreed, and Reagan signed a, a National Security Decision Directive in March 1985 that changed our goal to that. And so that made it easier then to do the support. And so uh, then I had to persuade you know, all our partners to go along with this escalation. And at the same, so Chinese, Pakistanis, Saudis, to get 
surf advanced surface-to-air missiles from the British. We required Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister Thatcher's approval. At first she said no, and then she said yes, and then later the U.S. Stinger, some months later. But all of that in 12 months. And at the same time, Mikhail Gorbachev had come to power as general secretary in March 1985 and ordered a uh, 25% troop surge, another 26,000 troops into Afghanistan and gave the generals, okay, you got more troops, win the war now in the next year or two. So we were escalating and the Soviets were escalating the war at the same time. And then by the end of uh, 1985 and early 1986, we had that was the bloodiest year of the war. And we had won uh, the, that Battle of the Surges, as I call it, achieved a form of escalation dominance, and the Soviets started looking for the exit. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the Stinger wasn't introduced until September 86. You know, it was approved early 86. We had to For then, those listening, the Stinger is a oh, uh, anti-aircraft. U.S. Uh, anti-aircraft uh, shoulder-fired shoulder fired, yeah. missile, very accurate. And it ended up performing spectacularly, shooting, having a 75% hit rate. But the Soviets had already made the decision to, to leave by then and were, you know, negotiating the terms. You know, could they preserve a communist government? Then they gave up. What would the terms of the troops' withdrawal be? And the last Soviet troops withdrew February 1989. And there's so many places to go here. I'll have to be careful that I, I don't ask all the questions I've been waiting to ask you for years and years because <laughs> we'll go all day if that's the case. But I just, the, the corollaries and the echoes that you keep talking about too are also echoing in my life. I mean, the Stinger, I believe, is still, it definitely was employed while I was in uh, the Army. I believe a version of it is still out there being used effectively. And even in the 90s, and I think into the 2000s, the helicopter that was most being shot down with the Stinger, the Hind, was was still in play. And we, the United States military has a handful of these that they fly, or didn't at that time, flew in training against, you know, they called them the opposition force down at the Joint Readiness Training Center and other places. And I remember uh, being in the middle of the woods on a, on a vehicle with a 50 caliber machine gun. And the instructions were, if you hear a Hind... You know, this is this is training. So these are blank fire weapons. You know, pull the pull the pin out of the tripod up on the top of the truck and go free gun and try to you know shoot quote unquote that hind out of the sky. And up until this point, most of us had never heard this helicopter. We just knew of it. And we knew what it looked like. But I'll tell you, when that thing's coming towards you, and I'm sure you've heard it obviously many many times, when that thing's coming towards you, flying just above the wood line, it has one of the most distinctive sounds of any helicopter anywhere in the world. And it is incredibly intimidating, even when you know that it can't kill you. It, it gets your heart rate going. So I just can't imagine what it was like to have been an Afghan insurgent at this point and realizing, going from knowing that certain death is coming over the ridgeline to having a weapon system that now you could defeat that, that now you were the, the thing to be feared on the ground by the hind pilot. Up until that point, hind pilots had nothing to fear. And then almost overnight, or it seems in history, almost overnight, it went. It got to the point where if you were flying one of those helicopters, you had a good chance of dying at the hands of one of these weapons. And psychological wins like that, the value can't be overstated, I don't think. I just would love to hear your thoughts just on... Yeah, so the, the Afghan resistance, the Hind was was a terror weapon, and the, the Afghan resistance called it Shaitan Arbat, or, or Satan's chariot. And... The, the problem is, is it had armor plating 
that made it invulnerable to anything 50 caliber and below, or the Soviet equivalent to 12.7, 50, 51 caliber, which the insurgents had. So we either had to get them a better round that could penetrate that armor for their 51 caliber weapons, a tungsten carbide round, for example, involved a lot of efforts, or move up the food chain to much heavier weapons, 14.5 millimeter and others, which we did, but also surface-to-air missiles. And that's what really turned the difference. And so we went from having 20 surface-to-air missiles in insurgent hands, roughly, in 1984 to almost 2000 by the beginning of 1986, a mix of British, U.S., and Chinese, which I, which I loved using Soviet copies of Soviet weapons against, against them. And the number of aircraft Poetic. shot down <laughs> went, went way up and forced them to fly higher, or stay in more secure areas. And the, the first shoot down was of three Heinz near Jalalabad Airfield with the Stinger team that we Again, just for people to see how these things string together, Jalalabad Airfield is where the SEALs launched from from the Bin Laden raid. Yes, and So, yes. I mean, it's just crazy to me always. Yes. And then another part of, you know, sort of interesting turns of history is that the transport aircraft that the Soviets used, the MI-17, we later used to insert our forces, CIA and special forces, into Afghanistan early in the war after the 9-11 attacks. And I flew around on those things all the time, and I was always cognizant of thinking, you know, we used to shoot down these things a lot. <laughs> with, with some of the weapon systems that still exist. That at some that of time the weapon systems that yeah. still exist, yeah. right. So, but anyway. Well, I, again... All of these avenues are just so fascinating. But one of the things I wanted to chat with you about that you, you delve into the book a, a little bit, but I think our audience would is specifically interested in this, and that's covert action as a tool uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. government um, in general. Those of us you know who follow this closely know, and it, it's not a classified thing to talk about. The Central Intelligence Agency effectively has two missions: to collect intelligence and to conduct covert action. Now, predominantly, it's collecting intelligence that happens over at that place, but from time to time, and sometimes often, covert action comes into play. You, your experience in Afghanistan the first time around in the covert action program that you led and, and helped both plan and then see into implementation is credited by nearly every single historian who's ever written about it as the, the likely most important factor to the defeat of the Soviet empire hard to find a more amazing metric for a covert action program than that. And it's proof positive that it can work, obviously, but there's many examples where covert action has not worked. And so I'd just love to hear your thoughts, having seen this both work and not work many times over the course of your long career, where you come down now on covert action and its implementation. And, you know, we talked a little bit about leadership and, and how important leadership is to that being effective and, and risk and risk taking. Because if you go, you know, half measures in covert action are usually what lead um, to their defeat, but full measures in covert action could be a defeat with epic disaster um, as the result. Yeah. So just one point of clarification, the core missions of CIA are really collecting intelligence, mostly clandestinely through technical means or human means, but through open source as well, and then doing all source analysis. And that's the steady 
you know, missions of CIA. And then covert action is this third mission that sometimes is very prominent and other times it's always there. Every president since Truman has used it, but it may be something many officers in the directorate of operations don't have any familiarity with and certainly um, decisive covert action programs. And I'll, I'll have to edit out that you corrected me on. Okay. Uh, just <laughs> so... Well, my DA colleagues would, would I know be you mad got it. if I you took care of them. I didn't uh, say my that. apologies. But <laughs> so, um, you know, to just explain generally to to our listeners, uh, covert action is uh, uh, operations undertaken to influence events abroad without the hand of the United States showing. Could be political, could be informational, could be economic or or military paramilitary operations. And, you know, there's always a number of covert action programs going on. Some of them are mundane. Others are, you know, you're the, they're the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy in a region. You know, they're the, decis- the, the central operational element. They can have very modest success, as you would expect with kind of defense. And you can do it for defensive purposes to shore up an ally or offensive purposes to undermine an adversary. They can have modest success, as you'd expect with some of the more routine ones, or occasionally really phenomenal success, as we have with a few. And the same thing on the failure side. Things can get stillborn right away when Congress says, why are you doing this and I don't want to fund it? Or you could have spectacular failures like the Bay of Pigs in 19. 1961 in Cuba when you you know try to do something really ambitious but you do it very poorly mm-hmm. and but it's a huge force multiplier when it works well and not surprisingly our most effective covert action programs historically are the biggest uh, and the reason you know so Afghanistan in the 1980s and then our counterterrorism programs have changed a lot over the past few decades and even before that. But after 9-11, when they reached a scale, they did some phenomenal things. And they're tremendous force multipliers when they do and, and, and returns on investment. But And so I like to say, you know, if you're going to do one of those big ones, I mean, one, make sure you do your planning and you really get it right. But play to win. Don't just play to play. Because covert action is this third option that people turn to when they've got nothing else. You know, presidents say, okay, I don't have diplomatic options. I don't have military options here. CIA, what can you do for me? Well, CIA may do something, but it may do it half-hearted. I, I mean, I hate to say that, but sometimes it's okay. You're asking me to do this. I'll do this, but my heart's not in it. I don't think we can win. And sometimes they miss the boat in doing that. You know, they're they're too timid when they ought to be bold. And and so that's why it's an art and, you know, and not, not a science. And that's why you have these variable outcomes. But the reason the big programs are successful is because you achieve a level of scale. And whether it's a global reach to deal with an al-Qaeda threat that's metastasized all over the place and intensity of operations, as we did with our uh, predator strikes against al-Qaeda after 2007, or whether it's ramping up the war in Afghanistan, you know, it, it takes it takes muscle to to win, just as it does with military force. You're talking about their escalation dominance, which you cover extensively in your book, and and anyone that wants to really understand the the facets of that should should check out those sections. And escalation dominance obviously worked in Afghanistan, but would you 
be able to touch on a couple of instances where it didn't work or it wasn't achieved or where we didn't necessarily reach the point that we would have hoped to and, and what were the factors that caused that? Sure. One of the things I try to do in the book is talk about over 40 years in the operations that I was involved in to a greater or lesser degree of why we won in some cases or achieved our foreign policy aims, even against seemingly impossible odds. And in other cases where you think, well, we ought to win, we ought to do the same thing, um, we fail. And, and what explains that? You know, and it's, it's usually a series of policy differences and others that lead to, in some cases, achieving escalation dominance and in other cases, not. So I contrast, for instance, in terms of support for opposition movements, Afghanistan in the 1980s with Syria, a support for the Syrian opposition more recently, where there were a lot more restrictions on what you could do to support the Syrian opposition. You know, you had to bring a group out to train them, small groups typically, before you could equip them. We didn't have those kinds of constraints in Afghanistan in the 80s. And so I drew, and, and, and also, Starting right away when your enemy is potentially vulnerable is another key metric. And then, you know, out escalating him up to a certain level. And so in Afghanistan, after the Soviets invaded in 1979, December 1979, within 10 days, we started putting weapons in the hands of the Afghan resistance. It took us 20 months in Syria from the beginning of the uprising to do that. In terms of tonnage or scale, what we supplied to the Afghan resistance during the decisive year of 1985 in one month took us 20 months to supply the same quantity, different 20 months from when we started. But, you know, when you're supplying a lot less, you're going to get more limited results. If you look at our strike campaigns, our precision strike campaigns um, with Predator uh, aircraft, where we had a high op tempo and where we relied on what's called signature strikes, we broke the back of organizations within a period of time. Where we took a more gradual approach or um, emphasizing what's called um, personality strikes, where you, the intelligence burden is, is higher, uh, or you don't have the tempo for other reasons, it takes longer to defeat your adversary. You may end up getting there. But it but it takes longer, and so that parallel is goes beyond covert action. And then, of course, you know, Bay of Pigs is an example where we really screwed the pooch in, in lots of ways, <laughs> yeah. but they, you know, didn't even come close. But but it matters, and you know, that's why I say if you're going to be in some of these where the stakes are high, you better play to win. And you know, if you succeed in one place doing something, you ought to think, okay, if this is the right formula, how do I copy this elsewhere and not reinvent the wheel? It's copying it, and then also the, the leadership factor is just so critical as we've seen, or at least I've seen, risk and the willingness to take risk just play such a huge role. And they always have, but they play an even greater role right now because I think the reason is when you get something wrong, one, the, the mistake goes further faster and is held in the state of mind of the American population and others for much longer because of social media and the movement of just nonstop news channels, you know, recapitulating whatever the mistake was. And you just know that any mistake is, is going to be with you forever. And I, there's other factors too that drive this. But I just wonder when, because there's people that are going to be listening to this, with, it's absolutely guaranteed that are going to be sitting in front of these decisions immediately. And they're going to be thinking about leadership and risk. And one of the things I noticed is we don't reward 
risk takers well in the national security community. We, we celebrate them after the fact if they're successful. But at the time that they're taking those risks, they're called cowboys or they're put under scrutiny uh, because the expectation is, is that risk could ultimately fail. And so we might as well plan for that failure anyways. Uh, and it makes taking those risks really hard. And, and if you do fail, you don't find very many people who are promoted for risking greatly and failing, but yet you need those people who are willing to do that in order to take those big risks that will be the only way towards success. And I just wonder how you would speak possibly directly to those folks who are going to listen to this and be in a position almost the same day to make this type of decision. And, and you, you got it right, obviously, a number of times. Sure. So, you know, I think it's calculated risk, but a couple comments on that. And then I, I want to come back to this issue of escalation dominance, if, if I can. Please. So, you know, one of the things about risk is that you can't really, uh, you know, people talk about risk averse and risk taking. You can't really eliminate it. What you can do is move it around a lot. So if you don't do something, you know, it's kind of sins of omission and sins of commission. You know, if you don't do something, you might be taking greater risk down the road as the situation deteriorates. You know, so prior to World War II, you know, it's easier to nip things in the bud than it is when they get really bad uh, on you. And a sec, uh, you know, so that's an important point to bear in mind too when you're thinking, you know, the safe course of action is is to do nothing. Well, that may be true; it may not be true. The uh, a second point, my good friend Bill McRaven just wrote a short another of his short little books on leadership <laughs> called "The Wisdom of the Bullfrog." The bullfrog's the oldest seal on active duty, and he was one for a brief period. But he has a number of chapters there that deal with risk, including borrowing the SAS, British Special Air Service model of who dares wins, you know, and running to the sound of the guns in your career that, you know, have to do with taking risk if you want to get ahead as a leader. And he has one line in there that I think is really right, which is, if you want to be a great leader at some point, you should seek out opportunities to take risk. And at first it thinks, well, that sounds crazy. You know, you're trying to drive me off a cliff or something. And not all, but the, the, the insight in that is number one, not all positions in a bureaucratic career require risk. Some of them just require competent management and, and other, and you, and you have to know the difference. But what distinguishes people is when they get in a position where the outcome is important and it's uncertain, and it does take bold action uh, of one type or another uh, to succeed. And so, you know, I, I, I spoke recently at a, a leadership course uh, for our old organization, and I emphasized that point about, about that. And so, you know, that sort of taking appropriate risk at the appropriate time, you know, makes, makes all the difference. On the escalation dominance side, I don't want to leave the thought that more is always better. It often is. You know, overwhelming force is important in military power, and, you know, I don't think we're doing enough in Ukraine. But also not making yourself excessively vulnerable or having the right approach, the, the, the right ways and, and means, as I say. So if you look at our invasion of Afghanistan in, in 2001, President Bush got it exactly right. One, if he, if he wanted to put in a big military force, it would have taken months and months and months to build up, and he wanted to do something right away. And they recognized that the combination of U.S. advisors, CIA, and special forces with small but 
potentially uh, leverageable Afghan resistance that was bottled up in the north and maybe some things could be created in the south and east, backed by U.S. air power, could let us prevail. And it did in a short period of time. And then later, when we put in you know, hundreds of thousands of troops in Afghanistan. We beat back the Taliban, you know, the Obama surge, but we can't defeat them. You know, we push them back for a while and then they come back. And the paradox of the Afghan war from 9-11 on is we could defeat 50,000 troops with 5,000 or fewer. You know, we had a large contingent of Marines in the South in the fall of 2001, but hundreds of CIA and Special Forces operators, even smaller number if you took out the Marines. And we couldn't win with 150,000. And yet the tragedy of our withdrawal from Afghanistan is that when we, once we had transitioned, when we were down to a few thousand left in country, as long as we were backed by U.S. air power and had security assistance going to the government and had the government on our side, we couldn't lose either. The Taliban couldn't win. The only way the Taliban could win is if we picked up and left and undermined the government, and that's what happened. And so that's why, you know, when you think about escalation dominance, it, it's a more nuanced concept than people realize. It's not, you know, it's having the right approach and, you know, not exposing yourself to ex excessive danger or something you can't sustain in a politically in a democratic society as people get war weary. And, you know, you have to think about it as a strategist. You know, the, the grand strategy is the orchestration of all elements of national power to improve your international position over a a period of time, usually a lengthy period of time. And the challenge with that is in our system, naturally, you have to do that across successive administrations. So you need something that's sustainable. And the key to that is identifying the, the main problem. What is the focus of grand strategy? And then coming up with appropriate ways to do it. So, you know, coming out of World War II, we had very experienced people the greatest generation, you know, that helped us recognize the new challenge and then organizing to counter it, you know. So CIA was created, the Department of Defense, the Air Force, NATO, lots of things happened in a short period of time. Truman Doctrine, you know, aid to Greece and Turkey at the beginning of the Cold War, Marshall Plan to, to organize ourselves. And with George Cannon, the diplomat, and the strategy of containment against the Soviet Union, that more or less was sustained through the Cold War. Now, there were more offensive periods or rollback under President Reagan and President Eisenhower, and then periods of more retrenchment or defensive containment. That's why the historian John Lewis Gaddis calls it strategies of containment rather than one strategy. But it generally was consistent. And we haven't had that since the Cold War. You know, in the 90s, it was pieces broke broken out and transnational crime is the main problem and, and, and other transnational actors, but, but not taking al-Qaeda, the rise of al-Qaeda seriously enough. After 9-11, obviously, the focus was al-Qaeda and then the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And with the rise of China, it's shifted over time back to great power competition. And then with Russia aligned with China and its invasion of Ukraine, it's brought, her, it's brought it into starker relief for a number of Americans. I wouldn't say all because, you know, there's increasing resistance to aiding Ukraine. But on the China problem, I think there's, there's that recognition. And so then the question is, what do you do about it? And what I outline in one of the last chapters of my book on winning the new Cold War 
is that the most important thing we have to do is really to get our domestic house in order. You know, and I've a number of my colleagues, four stars and top civilian officials across the national security establishment. The thing that keeps us up at night the most is our declining national unity, resilience that goes with that, an economy that fosters that, uh, a political system that is able to forge some some unity and and a sustained strategy even when we change uh, administrations uh, and that's where we really have to fix things education system I mean there's a lot of stuff that are outside my areas of expertise but I know that's the foundation for uh, projecting power and then the central competition with a rising China is very different from the one we had with the Soviet Union because instead of a a class of ideologies. You know, people talk about the Chinese Communist Party all the time. And yes, it's one party rule, and yes, they're communist, but their their economy is a form of a form of capitalism. And that's what makes them effective. You know, it's autocratic capitalism. It may it's not quite as bad as the crony capitalism in Russia, but it has allowed them to grow at unprecedented rates over over four decades. And so if you were to look from 2049 back, the 100-year uh, anniversary of the People's Republic of China, and say, who's number one in the international system? The Chinese are betting they'll be because they'll have the world's biggest economy and they'll be dominant in, in some of the technologies of the future. And so that's why I highlight that in the book as kind of the thing we've got to win. And it's different. I talked about operational escalation dominance earlier. There's also economic escalation dominance. That helped us win World War II. We haven't faced a competitor like China, who has roughly 60% of U.S. Uh, gross domestic product right now. You know, in the, in the 20th century, we never had a rival who had more than 50%, and some had a lot less than 50%. So we could outproduce them if we needed to. We may not have that advantage going forward with China. Now, China's stumbling in a lot of ways right now. So, you know, that picture um, could change, but it's an important point to keep in mind. And the, the new tech arms race in the Cold War, it was, you know, strategic weapons that mattered most, um, uh, and, you know, with the fear that one side, Soviets could get escalation dominance in nuclear weapons, and that would be very bad for us. Now it's really in these emerging technologies that affect wealth as well as power. So artificial intelligence, quantum technologies of all sorts, but particularly quantum computing, synthetic biology, automation of all sorts, new energy. Uh, and we've got a competition uh, to greater or lesser degrees with China in each of these areas. And then I talk about the more traditional areas, the the campaigns for global influence, but also information operations in this new information environment where distinguishing fake from real is a real challenge. Some of the implications for intelligence is our first line of defense in this world, but oriented toward the new competition and then strengthening our global and regional military deterrent. But again, back to the Cold War or strategic competition problem, if you successfully deter direct great power war as we did during the Cold War, you still got to win the, the strategic competition or the grand, and that's why grand strategy is so important. And then finally, like the first Cold War, 
building the right institutions or transforming the ones we have and then establishing a network of allies, but transforming them as well to new purposes, how we harness our capabilities together, matter enormously too. So that's kind of the five points is restoring our domestic unity and resilience and domestic bases of power, winning the economic technological competition, winning the information and intelligence wars, strengthening global and regional deterrence and transforming our allies and institutions. It's an amazing thing to hear someone talk about strategy in this day and age because we don't often get to hear about it, at least in the public, too much. It's, it's, we're distracted by some of those unity, national unity problems that you discussed earlier. But I would love to then hit both of these topics. But the first one, I'm just going to focus right in on China and Taiwan. The theme across both of these topics is myself and I think others finding it hard to explain to folks who don't study this as often as we do, why some of these decisions really matter. And China's invasion of Taiwan, I think if you ask the average American right now, they are hard pressed to tell you why that's at all important to them, or why they should even give a thought to, should we help Taiwan or not? But you obviously have extraordinary experience and lots of thoughts on why it would be better to help them in a near fight rather than wait until it gets much bigger. And I just wonder what you think, both about the potential for an invasion of Taiwan, whether it be hard or soft, you know, Russia into Ukraine is hard and, you know, China into Hong Kong very carefully is soft and they have both options in front of them. And then what, you know, how do you explain it when it comes up to folks who just can't fathom why we would get involved in another conflict so far from home that has so many enormous consequences? Sure. So first with China-Taiwan. So uh, first, uh, Xi Jinping, the the leader of China, has uh, made it his goal to solve the Taiwan problem on his watch. Now, it might be through influence means, as you said, uh, softer means like Hong Kong, or it might be uh, by using military force of various kinds, uh, a blockade or outright invasion. And through the Taiwan Relations Act, we're committed to helping Taiwan with their defense, but not necessarily directly intervening on their behalf. And one of the things that would weigh on a future president, should there be an invasion of Taiwan, is one, to stop it. Are you striking the, a lot of operational questions. Are you striking the Chinese homeland? What does that mean for escalation in the war? Or do you need to strike the Chinese mainland to give uh, a, a chance at victory? It's 100 miles off the shore of China, and so it's a lot easier for China to project power than it, than it is for us. Uh, there, it would be a direct confrontation between two nuclear powers. So there's a lots, of, lots of reasons why some people would think this is either too hard or uh, too risky or too risky exactly but on the other hand uh, it's a democratic society it, it's a world leader in producing uh, semiconductors and an amphibious invasion a blockade is one thing or particularly uh, missile strikes and cyber strikes uh, may be followed by a blockade but an amphibious invasion is a difficult thing and it does make you vulnerable you know again if you're china trying to cross those hundred miles with ships and so you want to do everything you can to bolster taiwan something I and others have called a porcupine defense, you know, to turn them into a porcupine through ability to halt that invasion or make it more problematic, but then to have resistance to it to buy us time. And then 
you know, provide time to the U.S. potentially to take action. And again, future presidents would decide that. If China is able to conquer Taiwan, it would obviously send shockwaves through the international system and through our other allies. And so again, it's something that one has to, has to really think about. Russia-Ukraine is a bit of a different problem because we're not fighting in Ukraine. They're doing the fighting. We're supporting them. And, you know, and again, it's attack on a large country in Europe. It's the biggest military operation since World War II in Europe. And, you know, the U.S. has an interest not just in European security, but weakening Russia, who's part of this. You know, the last thing we want to have to do down the road, and it's an unlikely scenario, but is fight a two-front war, an opportunistic uh, two-front war with Russia and China at the same time, where Maybe China decides to attack Taiwan, and then Russia thinks, okay, the U.S. is going to be stretched thin, and so we'll do the Baltics or somewhere else in Eastern Europe, and then the U.S. won't be able to counter us. And that's why defeating the Russians in Ukraine is important, not only for Ukrainian sovereignty, but also for European security, but also for its implications for China and for U.S. strategic planning down the road. And when you can get someone else to do the fighting for you and you have to supply them, it's a, pre it's, it's a pretty good deal. And when people are willing <laughs> to fight, yeah, yeah, as we've <laughs> shown in the past, and you know, when your adversary makes a mistake like that and gets themselves into trouble, you, you should generally try to take advantage of it. And you know, back to this question of grand strategy, you need both a public version that you can galvanize the nation politically behind, but you also need inside the government really serious secret versions that you implement to varying degrees. You know, a lot of things necessarily the government has to keep secret. Those are the more really effective strategies. How are you going to leverage your advantage? How are you going to do this, et cetera? And you need both. Just going to right away try to benefit from your sage guidance here and all the thought you've put into this. If you're looking at the system and the world as we see it right now and the strategy that's in place, what are some immediate things that jump to mind for you regarding strategy, some things that we ought to be doing but we aren't currently doing and, and should start doing very quickly if we want to be able to, at the very least, hold back some of these major risks? So as I said, I think the most important thing, and it's a challenge, I admit, is getting our domestic house in order. And, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take, you know, or what kinds of disasters we'll have to suffer before our political system really gets fixed. Uh, it seems heading, you know, a lot in the wrong direction. But on some of the strategy side, one of them is the two new dom warfare domains, space and cyber, are the inherently global domains, and they've become contested. And those are areas we've got to make sure we, we shore up and we can win in those, but particularly in space. You know, China right now is pretty formidable in its region and Russia right on its periphery to a degree. Uh, the thing that would make China a global power is really the ability to um, win a, a, a space fight. Uh, that's, that's what enables long distance uh, power projection. And that's only evolved recently, but it's something you know a Secretary of Defense really needs to pay a lot of lot a lot of attention to. And then this combination of political, economic, and informational competition in the world, you know, 
we're doing well in Europe and Japan and other places, having a little more challenge with uh, India. We're, we're not doing so well in Latin America and in Africa and or the global south more broadly. And, you know, it's something we like the Cold War, you know, it may be just, you know, different factors this time, rather than backing communist parties, they back autocrats or but, you know, it still has its economic and, and, and political dimensions to it. And we ought to take a hard look at our current strategies to see why are they not working and, and what white me, we do to to fix that because both Russian and Chinese influence are, are gaining in those areas and, and, and governments are turning the opposite way of the way we'd like them. And we ought to think about why why that is and so combination of of different things technology is really affecting warfare in terms of a drive toward automation as well as space and cyber more remote warfare it's also affecting the intelligence profession in a big way you know so we now have you know what we call the threat of ubiquitous technical surveillance rather than as just physical surveillance when you're trying to operate in you know so-called denied areas and so you need to develop counters to that so you can still operate or keep covert programs at least somewhat covert in a more transparent world and you know there how, how do you effectively do influence there's a lot of things we need to think about as this world has shifted pretty pretty dramatically we may have to have you back at some point to talk specifically about ubiquitous technical surveillance. <laughs> sure. This is a topic near and dear uh, to my heart, and uh, our, a good chunk of our listeners, I think, would like to listen to us go along on that. I think another chunk would immediately drone out because we would we would certainly nerd out on that. Can I can I add one thing? Oh, add whatever you want. First. No, please, yeah. So you asked about what should we be doing that we're not doing on strategy. I think keeping the main thing the main thing and where you can win this long-term competition is is critically important. You know, a lot of times we got diverted in the Cold War, you know, so we started strong, we finished strong, we didn't do so well in the middle, you know, and there are lessons from that. And in recent decades, we've not only emphasized the uh, global jihadist threat, we focused on regional powers because we didn't really see a great power rival. So Iran and North Korea and Iraq before that. And I think we overdid it in certain cases, but you also don't want to underdo it. And so the last thing I would, one of the reasons I was critical of the withdrawal from Afghanistan is we can keep the global jihadist threat down right now with what we call economy of force efforts, intelligence and a variety of means and working with partners around the world. It, it would be a disaster for American foreign policy if we had another 9-11 attack that then diverted us. You'd like to think, okay, I've won that. It's over. It's not over. It may they may be down, but you got to keep them down. And you can. And the goal is to keep them down at a reasonable level of effort. And it's the same thing with the regional powers who can align with the great powers. But you don't want to make them necessarily front and center. But you don't want to let them run crazy in their region or or then pull you into something that makes them center stage. And so that's an important part of strategy, but also keeping it in balance with your, your broader aims and your bigger rivals. When are you going to run for president? Uh, <laughs> oh, I would make a terrible politician. Oh, I, we, I think we disagree. You, I, I, I'm going to land this on you right now. You don't, you, you, I haven't said this to you before for folks listening, but we've met one other time, which I don't expect you to remember because you met many of us that kind of look the same in your years, but we were sitting in Deputy Director Morell's conference room. There were four of us, and we had been asked by President Obama to try and stop the IED 
problem in Afghanistan. I think this was 2012, maybe, or 2011, actually. And there was a task force that was being built up. I remember. You you and Director Morrell yeah. um, were manage, co-managing it. Yeah. And there were two of us that were... Um, and this was mainly coming from the Haqqani network. And Chaman. And Chaman. Yep. Right, right. And, and um, it was at the height of yeah. the IED problem in right. Kandahar and Helmand. Right. The Marines were getting killed every day by IEDs. Right. And and President Obama said, you got to stop this. Right. And so they assigned two of us yeah. from inside CIA as, as branch chiefs at that time uh-huh. uh, to work on this sort of under you. And yeah. we were both named Aaron. Uh-huh. Uh, and there were four of us sitting at a, the director's table. Yeah. And I, I remember something you said, or I'm going to paraphrase it because I'm going to miss it. And, you know, Deputy Director Morrell said, the president has asked, like, how do we stop the Marines from getting killed by IEDs? And you said something to the effect of, the only way you stop Marines getting killed by IEDs at this point in the war in Kandahar and Helmand is to move the Marines out of Kandahar and Helmand, because we aren't going to be able to get the IEDs to stop moving in there, given how we're positioned. I remember when you said that, it was it was reinforcing for those of us that were sitting down in the offices prosecuting this problem because that's exactly like what we felt at that time. We're not going to be, as long as we can't go into Miram Shah and take out the Haqqanis, we can't go into Chaman and take out the Taliban, they're going to be able to move IEDs across the border indefinitely. And you and you just said I'll have to tell the president that he's going to have to move the Marines because yeah. he's not going to move those damn IEDs. And I was immediately like, I, I want to I work for this guy. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, Afghanistan's a big country and there's lots of ways to move stuff. And unless you're willing to go into the sanctuary areas, you can't uh, eliminate the threat. You know, we did introduce some new capabilities that helped us detect ammonium nitrate mm-hmm. bombs and other things, and but then they shifted to other capabilities. Again, it's back to the conversation we had about risk. You can reduce the threat to some degree, uh, but you're not going to eliminate it. And so as long as you've got large forces in country, even if you reduce it and you achieve success in certain areas, you're going to take casualties. And, and you, you know, you just you either have to transition to Afghans bearing the brunt of that and you supporting them or some, you know, whatever your priority is in strategy, but we can reduce the threat, but we can't eliminate it. That makes total sense. And and where I really wanted to go with that was, what are you going to do next? Is this is the, 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 the baseline point there was, I really would have enjoyed working directly for you. A number of us, you, you say things that I just most often agree with 100%. And you think about things in a way that they need to be thought about. Do you see yourself at this point? Really, what I think is the the prime of your um, strategic mind and career moving back into government. You know, obviously, many of us would love to see you as Secretary of Defense or Director of the CIA, or or do you have other plans? Nobody answers this question. By the yeah. way, I asked our I asked our mutual friend Michelle Florinay a very similar question, and and she demurred. But well, I, I sure hope Michelle's the future Secretary of Defense. I'll just say that. She's a dear friend and a phenomenal American national security professional. So for me, there were only two jobs I think I would really be potentially good at, and they're the two you named, CIA director being first and foremost and, and uh, Secretary of Defense. You know, and, and particularly the latter, Secretary of Defense is a far more political job than the CIA director. That's why we tend to appoint senior politicians to it a lot. You know, that would depend on some future president, but also wanting to carry out a 
a foreign policy that I could be of use in supporting. If you didn't see the world the way I see it or you don't want to, you know, I believe in a very robust CIA and a strong military. And if that's not your policy, I'm not your guy. And so I, I will probably write another book or so on strategy or something to that effect or the Cold War and then uh, gracefully fade into retirement. But well, we'll be hoping for the former. Um, it would be an exciting day. Uh, and I, uh, any president should be immediately thinking of you for either of those positions. Um, I'll also be rooting for director of CIA uh, if you get there. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about what makes you optimistic for the future. What do you look at right now? And, and despite all of these challenges that we face and all of the adversaries, you look out and you think, I, I still feel optimistic because we – you are an optimistic person. Just by design, you need to be to have all of these jobs. And so I think we could benefit from some of what you're seeing. Well, you know, the flip side of that is that my old boss, Bob Gates, and others have liked to say, you know, that Mike Hayden, another one, that intelligence officers are realists. And, and you know, an occupational hazard can be you're kind of driven to the pessimistic side of that spectrum. And so much so that when an intelligence officer sees flowers, he immediately looks around for the coffin. I do ultimately can complain about a lot of things and wish we could fix things. Uh, I, I, I see myself as a problem solver, you know, a lot of my life, and particularly li I like really difficult challenges, why I went into the Special Forces and CIA and other, other areas. But I, I'm inherently an optimist. I think America is an exceptional nation. You talked earlier about CIA days. You know, when I see what some of our young officers, include special operators as well, contribute sometimes. It is just eye-watering, some of these operations, the risk they take and the great benefit they bring to the United States. And, you know, you think, boy, if we have 30-year-old men and women like this, we're really in good shape. How can and we lose? Yeah. How can we lose? And, you know, I have five daughters and two of them are, one's just started university and one's just finishing and three are older. Mashallah, is yeah. what I'm supposed to say here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and they're, you know, the quality of the education that they've received is way better than, than what I had back then. And so that gives me a reason for Optiv. They're very smart, not, not just my daughters, but their classmates and everything. They're very smart kids. And then you look at the the vibrancy of our economy and that encourages entrepreneurship and le leads in technology development. So there are a lot of good things that, and then I also look at and wish for that almost again. You know, in the 1970s, we had a lot of problems coming out of the 60s, but then scandals in the 70s and defeat in the Vietnam War and Watergate and all kinds of things. We recovered pretty quick, you know, and then leading through the decade, the Iran hostage crisis, we recovered in about five, maybe seven years or something, you know, then the early 80s recession. But, you know, by 1984, America was positive and very confident in itself and, you know, not without its challenges. But that gives you reason to think that, and we've done it through our history, that, you know, we can make mistakes and then rise to the occasion. And we did it in World War II. And so it ultimately makes me inherently optimistic. And then if you're serving the American people and government, you know, as a professional or as a, as a politician, it's your duty to channel that 
optimism and to try to give us that brighter future. You know, one of the things I hate about our politics today is how negative it is. Well, that's not your job. Your job is to fix that, you know. So so it, it, it's good to be on the optimistic side of things, I think, for more reasons than one. I, I, I totally agree. I see lots of, lots of reasons to be optimistic out there. We touched on a bunch of them today, technology and, and just the, the ability for America to reinvent itself. It's, it's built to be able to do that, and, and it's going to take a bunch of us to all pulled together to make it happen. Dr. Vickers, this has been an absolute uh, treat for me. I, I really appreciate you coming on here. If you want to hear more from Dr. Vickers on these topics, please go check out his book, By All Means Available. Many of these topics are covered, plus many, many more. If you're going to do it, I, I strongly urge you to listen to the audio copy because Dr. Vickers reads it himself. I don't know how you did that over 20 hours. I can't, have been doing this podcast for a little while. I can't imagine, but you did a great job reading it. So the answer to that is I was shamed into it by my wife and five daughters. Okay. You know, the publisher gave me actors who had auditioned and they all said, nope, you got to do it yourself. Your grandchildren or great grandchildren are going to want to hear your voice. So I was locked up in a, you know, soundproof room for more than 20 hours. I figured, hours yeah, there's 20 hours on, on, on record. Like yeah. it's got to be a lot more than that. I'm sure yeah. um, you got it right. But well, I'm glad that they talked you into it because it, yeah. it makes it that much more interesting um, to listen to you tell those stories. And some of them, I, I feel like you're barely even reading the pages as you tell them. So yeah. that's always a cool way to do it. So please, yeah, go check out that book. Thank you very much, Dr. Vickers. This My was a pleasure. great opportunity. Yeah, it's wonderful to see you again. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.